Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today is known as Trinity Sunday. Christians say God is a trinity, but doesn't that mean we actually worship three gods? So what is it, one or three? Join us for the message, Meditation on the Trinity. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, Christians say that God is a trinity, but doesn't that mean that maybe we actually worship three gods? So which is it? One and three, three and one. We're going to be talking about that later because today is actually known as Trinity Sunday. Last week was Pentecost Sunday, and the Sunday after Pentecost is always known as Trinity Sunday. So later on, we'll be having a meditation on the Trinity and be able to explore that Christian belief a little bit more in detail. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, today is Trinity Sunday, and this is, as one commentator pointed out, it's the only day in the church calendar that, is, that celebrates a doctrine. Now, it also then marks the special cycles of the church year. It transitions us. During the summer, we will be uh, celebrating a season of Pentecost. In late summer, early fall, we'll transition to what's called ordinary time. Ordinary time is where we emphasize themes of spiritual growth and life in the church. But before we continue then, though, with Pentecost and ordinary time, I want us to just review what the church calendar has looked like over the last six months. We've commemorated the life of Christ, first through the observance of Advent and Christmas, where we joyfully anticipate and then we celebrate the coming of the Messiah and the incarnation of our Lord. The Christmas season culminates in the observance of Epiphany, where we contemplate all the ways that God's presence is made manifest in Jesus Christ through the incarnation of Christ, through the arrival of the wise men and the baptism of Jesus. In the spring, Lent opens with Ash Wednesday, and that's followed with a 40-day period of reflection and repentance as we prepare for the crucifixion of Jesus. On Easter, well, also, Lent, as many of you know, it's 40 days plus the Sundays. Technically, the Sundays in Lent are not technically part of Lent. 
But then Lent does lead to Easter Sunday where we joyfully celebrate the resurrection of Christ. This then starts the 50-day festival season of Easter, which then culminates in the festival of Pentecost. And as we did last Sunday at Pentecost, we rejoice in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples and we celebrate the birth of the church, the birthday of the church. And so now we have weaved our way through the New Testament story. And I think it's time for us to pause and look at this central doctrine then of the Christian faith. Because it's the Trinity that truly makes the Christian faith unique. It defines the way that we conceive of God. We say that the one God is in three persons united in one substance and united in love. And let me assure you right now, there is actually no one on earth that truly understands this doctrine. So if you feel like you don't, <laughs> you are in good company. No one fully understands it. Um, it is what we sometimes call ultimately a mystery. Yet it says something that I think is very profound about the reality of God. Because if you think about it, if it's something that we can fully understand, then it's probably doesn't really tell us all there is to know about God. Because God is ultimately beyond human comprehension. comprehension. But I do think, as I said, that it tells us something very important about the reality of God. Now, our service today is actually going to be constructed a little bit differently. Instead of one sermon, I'm going to give a series of three homilies uh, on each person of the Trinity and Wesley is going to read a different scripture portion for each homily. And so this way we will be able to appreciate then the Trinitarian aspect. And I want to, this Sunday, I want to stress some different ways that we experience God through the three persons of the Trinity. Our own experience of the divine ultimately, our experiences shape our faith. And thinking more than the study of the doctrine, as important as that is, and one reason the church has, divine, has defined and promoted the doctrine of the Trinity is because I think it speaks so deeply to the way we experience God because we experience God in three broadly different ways. And one of the ways we experience God is as the creator, as the father, the one who made the heavens and earth and set the stars on their courses, the one who created us out of nothing but some dust of the earth and some divine breath. Now, many have told me over the years that you feel closest to God when you're out in nature. And I think a lot of us feel close to God when we're out in nature. Whether it's the mountains or the ocean or the desert, when we behold the grandeur of nature, we kind of experience ourselves bumping up against something that is wholly other than we are. God is God, and we are not. I can tell you it happens for me most in nature when I'm looking up at a sky just chock full of stars with that Milky Way band going across. This experience can end up making us feel how, how small we are compared to the vastness of creation. And sometimes we may even feel so small that the creator God can also seem at times very far away from us, as if that creator is looking down on us from heaven. And there is one human feeling then that I think is appropriate as we ponder 
the Creator God, and that is awe, maybe even shock and awe. God seems so beyond anything else that we can point to in our daily lives, and it, it is just something that is beyond the grasp of our minds. And I think the prophet Isaiah had this vision of God from what Wesley just read from the, from the sixth chapter. And it wasn't when he was out in nature, it was while he was serving in the temple. And at the sight of the Almighty, the only thing Isaiah could utter out of his mouth was, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when we behold this holy God, as we sang about in our first hymn, not only can we feel small, but sometimes, just like Isaiah, sometimes what we can feel is shame. Shame at our unclean lips. Shame at all the ways that we fail to fulfill that image of God in which we're created. But while this God can seem sometimes so remote, so far above us, so much holier than we will ever be, it's that same God then that reaches down to us. In Isaiah's vision, a seraph, a type of a heavenly being, touches a hot burning coal to Isaiah's lips, just as if you might use that to cauterize a wound. And the seraph then proclaims that the sin is blotted out. It's because this holy God, then wrapped in majesty, can still be interested in healing our wounds and sending us out as prophets that we call this God now Father. To a young child, a parent can seem to be all, almost all-powerful, yet at the same time, a mother or a father can scoop up their child in this flurry of, of love and affection. So we, too, have a heavenly parent who then scoops us up in a flurry of love and affection. And so this is God the Father. From the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Well, sometimes an email or a messenger just won't do. To fully communicate, you have to go there yourself. There are some things that can only be communicated in person, face to face. Now, as you know, these days there are myriads of ways that we can communicate with each other. In Jesus' day, the fastest way to get a message through was with a professional runner who would hand deliver a sealed scroll. 
And this really did not change substantially until Gutenberg invented the movable type press uh, in the 15th century. About the same time, countries started setting up postal systems. In the 19th century, the telegraph provided the first means by which we could communicate in anything resembling real time over a long distance. Later came the telephone, and then the modern fax machine came out in 1964. Then, as you know, came the personal computer revolution, and with it, the spread of the internet and email and then social media. And now, often, the quickest way to communicate is often through texting. And I have seen how sometimes younger adults can be annoyed when someone tries to call them because it's considered a little bit more personally intrusive. And I've seen them roll their eyes when their parents or other older adults insist on calling them on the phone instead of just texting them instead. But despite the almost countless ways that we have now to communicate, there comes a time when only face-to-face -face messaging will do. We need to be in the same room at the same time. Now, electronic communication is great. It can help keep us connected, but real closeness and authentic intimacy, that can only come through physical presence. We just need to be there. Now, through history, God has communicated to us through various ways, uh, through the revelation of the law on Mount Sinai, through the many of the Old Testament Hebrew prophets, through dreams, through visions. But there comes a time when you need to communicate face to face. You need to have a physical presence. You need to be there. As the writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way, long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. You see, God desired real closeness and authentic intimacy, and the only way to do that was to come and to dwell among us. Just in our Bible study, our pastor's Bible study, just this last week, we were studying the building of the tabernacle temple that the ancient Israelites carried with them as they moved through the journey of, through the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And I told them that that word tabernacle is actually used in the same passage from the Gospel of John that Wesley just read. Oftentimes, our English Bibles will say that he came and dwelt among us. But the actual word there is tabernacled. Or another way to put that is God came and God pitched God's tent among us. In fact, Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, actually says, uh, God came down and moved into the neighborhood and lived with us. One of the things that we affirm as Christians is that when we look at Christ, we're looking at God. The book of Colossians puts it this way, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then as Wesley just read from the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And just as we can see God in Jesus, we can also see in his life how an authentic human life should be lived out. Now, sometimes we can poke fun at the adage, and sometimes I do this as well, what would Jesus do? 
And while I think an ethical life can never be boiled down to a simple formula, I don't think that's a bad way to start. That is, to look at Jesus' life as a guide to our own lives. So, let's look at Jesus' life. What did Jesus do? He never failed to reach out to the oppressed and the downtrodden. He healed others in body, mind, and soul. And he taught the way of love, mercy, and justice. And he stayed in love with God his entire life with a life that was shot through with prayer. The ultimate human life. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we encounter then God's forgiveness and grace. We experience freedom in Christ and we receive hope for the future. All we need to do is to be willing to follow Christ's lead. So this is God the Son. From Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning in the 22nd verse. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We experience the majesty of God the Father in the grandeur of creation. We experience God the Son in the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even though Jesus is no longer with us in body, we're still able to experience Christ's presence in the nearness of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is often the hardest person of the Trinity to fathom. I, I said one thing in my, in my ordination paperwork several years ago that sometimes I think of the Holy Spirit as the forgotten stepchild of the Trinity. It's hard to understand sometimes the Holy Spirit. We use symbols, we use a symbol like the, the flight of the dove or the flame of fire or the movement of wind. And as I've said before, in both Greek and Hebrew, in both of the languages of the Bible, the same word means wind, breath, and spirit. And in Greek, the word is pneuma. The Greek word pneuma means both wind, breath, and spirit. In Hebrew, it's ruach, with ruach also means wind, breath, and spirit. So therefore, we can think of the spirit as a, as a wind from God, maybe even the very breath of God. God the Father can sometimes seem so far above us and God the Son is no longer physically present on earth. The Spirit, however, that's God as close as our own breath because just as oxygen fills our lungs and is then transferred through every artery in our body, God's Spirit enters us, filling us with God's presence and invading, in a good way, our hearts and minds and transforming us ever more perfectly into God's perfect image. Paul writes in his letter to Romans that the Spirit enters into us 
at the most foundational level of our being and becomes for us prayer that is too deep for words. The Spirit prays with us. The Spirit prays through us. And the Spirit prays for us. And it's through the Spirit that we experience the depth of intimacy with God. It's the Spirit then that guides us on our spiritual journey of sanctification. This is God, the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is a doctrine of the church, but it's a lot more than that. It's more than a theological concept. I think the Trinity broadens our spiritual perception. The Trinity makes sense of our experience of the divine. And I think the Trinity makes our spiritual lives comprehensible. A friend of mine deeply relates to God as Holy Spirit. And she told me, just half-jokingly, that being a Christian gives you three options for being in relationship with God. Now, I joked with her back that the Trinity is not a multiple-choice question. <laughs> but I see what she means. We do have different ways of relating and experiencing God because of our doctrine of the Trinity. But we also believe that when we relate to one person of the Trinity, we are still relating to all of them. Because remember, we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is in a, into a Trinitarian life that we are baptized. And then Christ sends us out in mission to baptize and then teach to all the nations. So in this Trinitarian life, prayer is not a one-way message that we send up to God. It's more like being invited into this ongoing conversation between the three persons of the Trinity. So the invitation is there. Come join the conversation. Come join the dance and rejoice with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so now with the confidence then we have then as children of God, let's pray the prayer our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day your daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us receive this benediction. Go forth in the fullness of holy mystery. May the love of God enfold you. May the grace of Christ Jesus flow through you. And may the communion of the Holy Spirit complete you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 o'clock. You'll find audio recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we are now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.